scripture passage for today is continuing to uh, work on the book of James together. And we are in the second portion of the fifth chapter. And if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn and read along as I read aloud from God's Word. James chapter 5, beginning with verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and for the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard, for instance, of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Let us pray. Dear Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we come to it with joy, recognizing that there are pearls hidden in every word, in every passage. That your Holy Spirit has the power to bring those pearls to our attention, that our lives might be changed forever, in ways that bring joy to our hearts and peace in the midst of whatever situation we encounter, whether persecution or blessing, all of these things put together when we trust in you, cause us to be blessed in our faith and mature in you. So we ask that as we come to your word this morning that our hearts might be prepared and might be worked upon by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that my words might be faithful to your word because you are the one who is holy and your word partakes of your nature. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel like today is an excellent day to bring this this passage to your attention. From Sandy's and my perspective. From what we have been through in the past, from what we are going to be involved in over the next three weeks or so. Because we're about to embark on a journey down to Columbia, which is nearly the end of one journey, and yet the beginning of another journey, if all goes well in Columbia. The end of waiting for God to provide the reins of children. The beginning of the planning of child rearing. Now if I were to show you the stack of papers that we have at home that we have gone through and processed in order to get to this point, it's this high and growing constantly. There are many more papers that have been sent off to various places. We've learned a good deal, as you can imagine, in this process, and had several points at which we were told we would have children within months over the past three years. Now we're finally bound for Columbia. We have passports. We have orphan petitions to bring back more than one child from Columbia. We have approved, notarized, and authenticated You don't know perhaps what authenticated means in the official sense, but we learn through this process documents for applications for adoption. 
We have home studies, yes, more than one, because Immigration and Naturalization Service requires you to update your home study every year to continue to have an orphan petition in effect. <clears throat> we have statements of health. We have statements of wealth. We have statements of credit recommendations. We have fingerprint files. Just go down to the Bristol, Virginia Police Department and you can get a fingerprint any day of the week. Well, most any day of the week for $5. We have numerous fingerprint files. We have telephone bills that range from Washington, D.C. to Bogota, Colombia, to Medellin, Colombia, to Pasto, Colombia, and everywhere in between. And now we have stuffed animals, bottles, cribs, up, not just down, <clears throat> burping towels and all that is related to that paraphernalia, including the names for children. Over the last week, several people have asked me if I'm excited about all this. Really, the waiting and the process has been so drawn out. <laughs> Over three years, you take one step at a time. <clears throat> that I'm only starting to get excited in very, very little doses at present. <laughs> Are you excited? Well, it depends on when you ask me as to whether or not I'm excited. <clears throat> not that I'm not delighted. Now, there's a difference between being excited and delighted. One is something that you know in your mind, and the other is something that is more of a feeling, perhaps. But excited, I'm still trying to adjust to the reality. <clears throat> because for the last three plus years, we have been living by faith in this matter. And I don't say that lightly, even now. <clears throat> because we've gone through all these steps and stages, trusting God to cause the details to work out, if He wanted them to. Understanding at any step along the way, that may not be what His desire is. Understand that with me as well. That may not be what His desire is. <clears throat> So we've trusted God to work out the details if He wanted them to. And we trusted God to cause the details to fail if He wanted that to happen as well. But in order to go through this process, jumping through all of those hoops, <clears throat> you must keep your eyes fixed on that goal. You must keep your eyes fixed on getting children. That purpose. What is at the end of the road? Is there something down there? Because if you do not keep your eyes fixed on the end of the road in a job like this, believe you me, you won't start it. Everything must be done in duplicate or triplicate, translated. You just continue to go through the steps and when a problem comes up, you have to go through the steps ten more times. <clears throat> in order for you and I to get anywhere valuable, whether it's in an adoption process or any process in life whatsoever, we must exercise patience. Now, patience is a great virtue. But oftentimes, I find, I think at least in myself, as I'm considering this passage and what patience means, I think patience is one of the reasons why when people ask me if I'm excited, say, well... I'm, I'm delighted, I'm, I'm glad we're going, and, and I get excited from time to time, and I think when we get there, I'll be excited. But I think patience is something that has to govern. It's like a governor on a car. It keeps that speed from getting so high 
that the engine burns out. What do we see in our passage about our spiritual life? We see that it is crucial that you and I keep our eyes on the goal. What does the farmer look to? Does he look to the next day? If all he looked to was the next day, he would not plant those seeds in the ground. Because you have to plant the seed in the ground. The seed must die in order to grow and to produce a harvest. The farmer is looking to the goal, which is the harvest. And so must we. Now as we look at the farmer and as we look at our lives, spiritually speaking, we realize that there are many steps along the way in our life of faith which might only cause us to dread what's coming next. Go back to this adoption process. Get a home study done. Get someone to come into your home and look at everything from fire escape plans to where you were born, grew up, how you related to your parents, all these sorts of things. Oh, heavens. I'm glad it's done. Because as you look at the steps along the way, you say, no no thanks, I'm not interested. The harvest is worth anticipating. If we focus our eyes on the steps along the way, forget it, folks. The same is true in the spiritual life. If you focus your life as, as as a believer on the steps that you must take as a Christian along the way, then you lose sight of the only thing which is capable of making you take those steps, which is the harvest, which is the return of Jesus Christ, and the reward that comes from the fruit that we have planted and that has grown and produced further fruit. But as we look at our lives as well, we realize that the harvest is worthwhile, whereas without a harvest, the work is too great and the joy too little. Without a goal, we won't take the steps necessary to go anywhere. <clears throat> I'd like you to think about what is spoken of in our passages, a valuable crop the farmer has planted. What do you think it is? What is this valuable crop that he's planted? As you think about farming in this agrarian illusion here. It takes some fruit trees several years after they have been planted and tended before they will produce their first fruit. Other trees take much longer than a few years before they will produce a harvest of fruit. But then again, I've got one for you. You can grow bean sprouts. You can grow bean sprouts. Plant them And within a few days, you will have your harvest. Right? Why plant a fruit tree? Who wants a nut tree? Or an apple tree? Or a peach tree? Or a kiwi tree? Or a cherry tree? Who wants any of these things when you can get bean sprouts? (laughs) Isn't that a great idea? (laughs) That's a little ridiculous, isn't it? We must focus on the fact that what the farmer is planting in our passage is not a crop like bean sprouts. I mean, I don't know whether or not you like bean sprouts. They have their place. (laughs) And you can fill in where their place is yourself. 
However, they cannot compare with fruit trees and nut trees and all of these sorts of other things that takes years perhaps to produce a fruit because the fruit that comes from these things is a valuable harvest. And bean sprouts, if you're looking for bean sprouts, that's great. But most of us would say there's not much involved in that and it's not really a valuable harvest. You're not going to make your fortune on bean sprouts. You're not going to can bean sprouts and pull them out when winter comes and say, these are from my garden. (laughs) However, you will with the apples. You will with the peaches. You'll pull the nuts out. You'll pull all these other things because they are a valuable harvest. So as you and I consider this from a spiritual standpoint, we must ask ourselves, are we planting a valuable harvest? Or... Are we only growing bean sprouts? Because really there's little value in looking towards the goal if the goal is bean sprouts. <laughs> I mean, shoot, if, if it doesn't turn up well today, plan another one tomorrow. Who cares? You can do that every day of your life. And at the end of your life, what have you got? You got a, you got a, you got a tabulation record of bean sprouts. <clears throat> Think of this with, with regard to fruit trees. There's a man in our neighborhood who had, I would guess, about 20 fruit trees in his backyard. And he grafted them. And so he would have five or six different apples, for instance, growing on one tree. Several years ago, he died. And yet the orchard is still there, producing that valuable harvest. So this is not the main message of this passage What are you producing? What is your valuable harvest? However, it's a crucial message for each one of us in life that we must ask ourselves because if we don't get down to producing a valuable harvest, which is a harvest of knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior, then all we are throwing into the ground is bean sprouts. And you don't even need the ground to produce bean sprouts. You can grow them in water. So ask yourself, as you come to this passage, am I a farmer who is producing a valuable crop, or am I throwing in bean sprouts? Okay, I promise that's the last time I will say those words. (laughs) What else do we see? If you weren't watching, you didn't catch that. (laughs) Okay, what else do we see from our passage? We see that it's not only crucial for us to have a goal and to have a worthwhile goal in order to take the steps along the way, but it's also crucial for us to look to God each step along the way. The example of the farmer, what's he doing as he is waiting for that magnificent harvest to come up? He is counting upon the power of nature to provide rain. Now, there's no example here in which James is telling us this farmer is a Christian and only Christian farmers wait for rain. No, this is just a simple example from nature. But he is looking for the universe, creation, to provide him with rain so that his harvest actually will come up. For us as believers, this is crucial because we know that God is the one who provides rain. And what we must do is we must look to God for the provision of each step along the way. We must look to God for the rains necessary to cause our goal to come to fruition. How do you ever get to the point where you start out wanting to adopt children and you finally wind up with children? 
Well, you can force it through. You can buy it. And that's what our previous passage has been talking about. A lot of these things cost money one way or another. But if you're a believer, in order to have it come out and have it be the harvest that you want it to be, with God's help, you must count on His blessing the steps along the way. And if you think you can cause it to happen yourself, then you might wind up with a result you won't like yourself. So you and I must look to God for each step of the way. There are many steps in our lives that are completely out of our control. We realize that. The response of other people to ourselves is so frequently out of our control. If you think, for instance, of the, the, uh, um, the way in which New York City is stereotyped, some of you would say, well, they're not stereotyped because I've been there and they were that way to me. New York City is stereotyped as brash people who insist upon their own way, shove other people around and won't do what anybody else wants. Now I think as we look at our passage and realize that that is the description of the wealthy that comes before this passage in in James chapter 5, we realize that the farmer is contrasted with the way that we might typify people from New York City. Now we recognize they're all not that way from New York City, but I think you understand what I'm getting at that way. Why? How do people get that way? How do people become brash and rude? and uncaring about other, other people, and unresponsive, insistent upon their own ways. Well, it's in contrast to the farmer. Because the farmer realizes he can't push it through. He can't cause the harvest to come up just by spitting on it himself. That doesn't count. It will not count as rain. He won't get a huge harvest, certainly, from that. <clears throat> and if you think of... New York City or other places in the world like that, I think what you find is one of the results of our moving away from an agrarian, a culture where people farm and put things in the ground and wait for them to grow up, is this. The people no longer have to wait on things that are out of their control. And so when you get to be the people who are described in the first part of chapter 5, people who I've categorizes people from New York City could be any one of us as well what has happened to these people is they have said I am going to make it happen myself thank you I will make it happen for myself I have the means at my disposal I will ensure that it happens and what we want to be to be is people who realize we are dependent upon God We want to recognize every step along the way where God is the one who is capable of helping us. Look to Him for the rains. Realize that without His providing the rains, the harvest isn't going to come. The goal is not going to be achieved. Now, what is the central message in this passage? The central message in this passage is this. Do not grumble against other believers. Do not grumble against other believers. Why is this in the midst of this passage? It says, do not grumble against other believers or you will be judged. The judge is waiting at the door. Why in the context of this? Why does it happen? Grumbling against other believers happens because we have failed to keep our eyes on the goal. We were talking in the sanctuary Sunday school class this morning about unity. 
Disunity happens when people, Christians forget that our purpose is to tell people about Jesus Christ and to help one another grow in Christ. If we think that our purpose is to do build great buildings, run great hospitals, some of the things that Christians have done over the centuries, have great ministries to the poor, or particular age groups, or whatever. We've got it wrong. Our purpose, the goal that we must be united behind as believers, is to glorify God in heaven. And when we don't keep our eyes on the goal, then we cannot be unified and we start grumbling. What can happen is we can get caught up in looking at the other players. Instead of keeping in mind what I'm supposed to be doing, this is my job, this is my goal. And we look at the other players and say, oh, they're not, that, but they, oh, but he's not doing, she's not doing that. Oh, boy, did you see that she wasn't doing that? Oh, doesn't that just make you disgusted? Well, the fact is at that point we've lost sight of the goal ourselves and we've gotten caught up in another goal, a side, byway, something that is totally and completely wrong. <clears throat> we've lost sight of the work that we need to be doing to achieve the goal of a fruitful harvest. Now, we realize that lack of unity is something that is common among believers. Grumbling is something that is common among believers, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be common among the marriages of believers. It shouldn't be common among the work relationships of believers. It shouldn't be common among the church relationships of believers. It should not happen among believers. Now, hearing that, you say, well, that's easy to say, right? That's easy to say. Grumbling should not be common and it shouldn't happen among believers. But that doesn't get me there. Well, I think what happens is this. Is when people get caught in the grumbling trap, they're looking for answers that can't be given in words. You can't just say, stop grumbling. Because they're thinking about themselves and they're feeling perhaps badly for themselves or perhaps that other people aren't pitching in or perhaps that other people aren't carrying the weight and all these sorts of things. And this grumbling starts, the ball starts rolling. And they say, but you have to have a better answer than that. The problem needs to be solved. Well, if it's a spiritual problem and a sin, then you need to go to that person and deal with it as a sin should be dealt with. But if it's a grumbling issue where you're judging a situation and you're blah, 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 then it's got to stop. What does our passage say? Does our passage say, this will help you stop grumbling? Well, it does, because it gives us two things here. It gives us the fact that we should focus on our goal, which is the wonderful harvest, and we should look to God for the steps along the way, which is the rain, the things that we cannot provide. However, beyond that, the only thing he says about grumbling is what? Don't do it. Don't do it. As simple as that. He just says, don't do it. There is a prescription again in this passage to stop grumbling. And it is, keep your eyes fixed on the goal and move towards it. And look to God for each step along the way. Now we're given models in our passage, examples, heroes that we are to look at. And these heroes are the prophets and Job. What did the prophets do? 
The example that we see from the prophets is this. They pursued their goal. Their goal in glorifying God, their magnificent harvest, was to reap the fruit of proclaiming the messages of the Lord. You and I then, people, if we are to imitate the prophets, we must also be proclaiming the messages of the Lord. He's not going to say, the farmer is planted a magnificent Planning and planning and planning on a magnificent harvest, and then tell us to go out and play tiddlywinks. The examples that he's going to give us in this passage, when he's speaking about a magnificent harvest, are things that will lead to a magnificent harvest. Proclaiming the messages of the Lord, we need to be about God's business, telling His word to other people. We need to be telling His Word to other people. If we're not telling His Word to other people, it's no wonder that we have lost sight of the goal because that is a major part of the goal. It's no wonder we start looking around and looking at other people and not liking the way they're doing this, that, or the other. It's no wonder we start complaining because we're not using our mouths to speak the things that are supposed to be spoken, which is God's Word. What else do we see from the lives of the prophets? That they did this despite great suffering and persecution. This is the case not only for the prophets, but also for Job. Despite great suffering and persecution, they had patience. They waited for things to turn out. For Job, things did turn out. And this is what culminates in the end of our passage. For he is, for the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And the primary class downstairs learned this, this passage, this section of the verse, a couple weeks ago. For the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. But wonderful, more wonderful message than could you get than that. For the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. If you're a farmer, what more do you want to know than that the one who is up there moving those ducks to cause that rain to come down is full of compassion and mercy. He's not going to see you looking up, pleading for rain and say, Ha ha, shut it over here and move it someplace else. He's frustrated. But the example that we see from the prophets in Job is this, that they persevered despite great suffering and persecution. What kind of persecution did they have? Their persecution was frequently from their enemies, but it was also from those who were or should have been their friends. This is something for us to bear in mind, that we must have patience. However we're persecuted, we must not allow, if there is grumbling ever that goes on around us, we must not allow the grumbling to get us in that mode. But instead, to look to the prophets who when the grumbling started and the people said, Wow, you see, Jeremiah, that crazy fellow is out there doing thus and such. Can you believe what a ridiculous sight he's making of himself? I can't believe his wife could even live with that. That's... Paraphrasing, I mean, you know, there's nothing in Scripture that says that. But you can imagine the grumbling that might have been going on about this prophet, Jeremiah, or any of the other prophets. Or Job as well. We have a whole book telling us what people said to Job. They didn't just stay in their houses and say, oh, you know that, Job, really, he's wicked. And that's God's giving it to him. You just watch. He's going to get more and it's going to get worse. They went to him and they told him that in person. Hey, guess what, Job? This is why you're suffering. <laughs> You have been a bad man. And as a result, you are getting it from the Lord. And it's His judgment. So, if we ever get in the midst of grumbling, if we're tempted to grumble, we need to remember the examples. Because the prophets were doing God's work. 
They continued doing it despite grumbling because they had their eyes fixed on the goal. They had their eyes fixed on the marvelous harvest. They didn't have their eyes fixed on satisfying and pleasing people here and now. They had their eyes fixed upon pleasing God because as our passage says, He is returning soon. 